Let's get this show on the road. Commanding you to bow down. I'm on your side. By branding you as a rebel. But you're not. A traitor. This isn't freedom. This is fear. are not the government. The government is not us. This is the Welcome, welcome, welcome to Dean O Files. Episode number 71. No, the emergency episode from the other day does not count. That is not a full episode. But we are going to be talking about the topic that was covered on that emergency episode a little bit more today. There's been a little bit more news come out about it. The story has somewhat shifted since it initially broke. But before we get into that, I need to tell you this is being recorded on the 12th of August, 2019. Man, it's good to be back in a groove. All right. I was listening to, uh, oh, I wanted to say, if you weren't here for the pre-show, uh, in the, uh, on AIRD.io slash live, we were listening to some Hard House earlier, so I'm a little bit, I'm kind of, feel kind of jumpy. feel kind of, I don't know. I don't know, I'm jazzed. I'm ready to get this thing going. So, our interesting article from today is going to be sourced from pewresearch.org. This is, uh, I wanted to branch out from Quillet a little bit. Uh, on top of the fact that I've been using them too much for interesting articles, um, they also did have an editorial scandal uh, the other day. So I'm not... <clears throat> I'm just, I'm not comfortable using them as much as I was, uh, because looking through the Twitter threads and things like that, it, it, there's really no way around it. They fucked up. They fucked up. So we're going to be going to Pew for our interesting article today. Published on August 6, 2019 by John Gramlich, Gramlich, I'm not even sure how you pronounce that. Young Americans are less trusting of other people and key institutions than their elders. From the story, Americans believe trust has declined in their country, whether it involves their fellow citizens' faith in each other or their confidence in the federal government, according to a wide-ranging new Pew Research Center survey. And adults ages 19 to 29 stand out for their comparatively low levels of trust in a number of these areas. Around three-quarters, 73%, of U.S. adults under 30 believe people Quote, just look out for themselves most of the time. Well, that's always been true. Uh, it's always been true that that's the case. It hasn't always been true that that many people have thought that. A similar share, 71%, say most people, quote, would try to take advantage of you if they got the chance. And 6 in 10 say most people can't be trusted. Quote, can't be trusted. Across all three of these questions, adults under 30 are significantly more likely than their older counterparts to, make a, to take a pessimistic view of their fellow Americans. Uh, all told, nearly half of young adults, 70, uh, I'm sorry, 
are what the Sinners Report defines as low trusters, people who, compared with other Americans, are more likely to see others as selfish, exploitative, and untrustworthy rather than helpful, fair, and trustworthy. Older Americans are less likely to be low trusters. For example, just 19% of adults ages 65 and older fall into this category, according to the new survey, uh, I'm sorry, according to the survey, which was conducted in late 2018 among 10,618 U.S. adults. That is a, uh, that's a pretty significant population. Young adults also express less confidence in their fellow citizens to act in certain civilly-minded ways. Only around a third of young Americans, 35%, say that they have a great deal or fair amount of confidence in the American people to respect the rights of those who are not like them. About half the share of adults 65 and older who say this, uh, 67%. And that's, that is contingent upon the definition of rights, which I doubt was defined in that question. This is an interesting thing about, about these kinds of surveys. You take a word like rights, and it can mean different things to different people. We have, uh, and I'm sure anybody listening to this show has heard this concept before, at the very least, um, this idea of positive liberty versus negative liberty. The idea that um, you have a right to do what you want so long as it doesn't impede other people doing what they want, as opposed to a right to be sheltered from certain things. This is where hate speech laws kind of come in. People have this idea that you have the right to not be, uh, you know, well, honestly, <laughs> okay, I was just watching the, uh, a little bit of the bonus episode from The Dick Show, uh, covering Maddox's most recent uh, freakout on the internet. and. The crux of the case that Maddox brought against Dick Masterson and others uh, to the tune of $200 million um, is the, the crux of that case was that Maddox got made fun of and didn't like it. So he wanted to call it things like defamation, libel, all this other stuff. It had no merit. Um, but that's an idea kind of of positive liberty. This idea that you have, you have a right to feel safe. You have a right to feel... Uh, as though I'm, I'm defining this incredibly poorly. Um, I'm realizing that now. Positive liberty is a right to health insurance. Negative liberty is a right to buy health insurance. That's the difference, largely. The United States tradition has been one of negative liberties. This idea that you, you, you don't have to do something and you, and you don't... You, you, you're, you get to be unharassed by government. Whereas a right to having health insurance or in cases as described today, health care, they don't just say health insurance anymore, They're having a right to health care means having a right to someone else's labor, forcing them to take an action. Um, rights mean different things to different people, and I doubt that was defined in the actual question, though it may have been, I could be wrong. Uh, similarly, young adults are much less likely than those 65 and older to say they have confidence in the American people to do what they can to help those in need, 53% versus 80%, work together to solve community problems, 52% versus 71%, Treat others with respect, 48% versus 74%. Accept election results, no matter who wins, 44% versus 66%. And reconsider their views after learning new information, 40% versus 61%. Uh, young Americans are less confident in key institutions. Low interpersonal trust is associated with less confidence in institutions, the study found. And this pattern is evident among young adults. While trust in the military is high across age groups, Americans under 30 are substantially less likely than their elders to express a great deal or fair amount of confidence in the armed forces. Around 7 in 10 young adults, 69%, are confident in the military, 
compared with 81% of those ages 40, uh, I'm sorry, 30 to 49, and 90% of those 50 to 64. I have to stop the cat, he's into something. Oh, there was a little bit more to that sentence. And 92% of those 65 and older. Okay. Uh, da, 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 da. Americans are also less likely than older adults to say that they have, young Americans are also less likely than older adults to say they have a great deal or fair amount of confidence in religious leaders, police officers, business leaders, and K-12 public school principals. But this isn't the case across the board. Young adults are slightly more likely than people 15 and older to say they have a great deal or fair amount of confidence in college university professors, for example. Oh, Christ! <laughs> oh, this is terrible. I, just, I thought this was fascinating, but my God. <sighs> dumb. Dumb. Just dumb across the board. Uh, and not the, not the distrusting thing. The distrusting thing I buy. Look, the, I think a lot of these statements have always been true. People just, people just believe too much in the kind of thin veneer of civilization. These are the kinds of questions, you know, going back to the top of the story. Uh, quote, people just look out for themselves most of the time. Uh, quote, people would try to take advantage of you if they got a chance. Um, uh, quote, people can't be trusted. I, I, think, I think to a certain degree, all of that's always been true. I think there's this thin veneer of civilization that people have wanted to believe in for so long, and I think it's starting to fray. And I think that's probably a good thing overall, if that, if that thing frays, because that, it, people... I think we'll be forced to approach their lives more carefully, but also more honestly. Um, at least I would hope that would be the case. In all, in all likelihood, people are just going to be stupid with this kind of information. Moving on, first story from thefire.org, the Foundation, the Foundation for Individual Rights and Education. I always mushmouth that, but uh, this was published on August 8th by Samantha Harris. In flawed but ultimately helpful ruling, First Circuit recognizes limited right to cross-examination in campus disciplinary proceedings. This is important. Earlier this week, the U.S. Court of Appeals for the First Circuit issued a ruling that delivered something of a legal victory for due process on campus while denying any significant relief to the plaintiff himself. I say something of a legal victory because the decision, while highly significant for recognizing that due process requires schools to make some provision for cross-examination in cases of serious campus misconduct, was somewhat ambiguous about what that should look like uh, in practice, but more on that later after a bit of background. They then continue on to give us the facts of this case and kind of the timeline of the way that it all broke out. I'm not going to read all that. I'm going to skip down a little bit. On August 6th, the First Circuit handed down its ruling in Hydax case. The court held that while UMass had violated Hydax's due process rights by suspending him without notice prior to holding a hearing, the procedures employed at the hearing, at which he was ultimately expelled, did not violate his due process rights. The court also affirmed the lower court's dismissal of Heidek's Title IX sex discrimination claim. Practically speaking, the ruling is not much of a victory for Heidek himself. The court ordered the lower court to award him, quote, nominal monetary damages for the improper suspension, but his expulsion from the university remains unchanged. The ruling is, however, a real step forward for campus due process in the First Circuit, which is now the second federal appellate court to recognize a right to cross-examination in the context of campus sexual misconduct proceedings. Uh, the court, quoting Fire's amicus brief, wrote that, quote, We agree with the position taken by the Foundation for Individual Rights and Education, as amicus in support of the appellate, that due process in the university disciplinary setting requires, quote, some opportunity for real-time cross-examination, even if only through a hearing panel. Admittedly, 
The right to cross-examination as construed by the First uh, Circuit is narrower than the right as construed by the Sixth Circuit in its landmark Doe v. Baum decision. While Baum required the university to allow the party's representatives to conduct the cross-examination, the Hydak court held that the questioning could be conducted by a neutral third party. Quote, we have no reason to believe that questioning of a complaining witness by a neutral party is so fundamentally flawed as to create a categorically unacceptable risk of erroneous deprivation. The court added, however, that the third party questioning might, uh, must be meaningful. Quote, when a school reserves to itself the right to examine the witness, it also assumes for itself the responsibility to conduct reasonably adequate questioning. A school cannot both tell the student to forego direct inquiry and then fail to reasonably probe the testimony tendered against that student. Why is my cat freaking out right now? He's knocking shit over? Ah. In any case, that was the story. I'm, 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 I don't know. This is, things are moving in the right direction as far as discipline on campus goes. Um, I read a story last show, episode number 70, about how the sort of, about Title IX, um, especially in cases of sexual misconduct, the, these Title IX hearings are deeply, deeply flawed. Um, most misconduct hearings on campuses are deeply, deeply flawed, but especially the ones that involve Title IX. They're particularly egregious. And I'm, I'm happy to see things moving in the right direction. It's just very, very slow. Here's something scary from Reason, Reason.com, published on the 9th, uh, written by Ben McDonald. No probable cause required for cops to access user data from popular apps. Only, st only three states require police to obtain a warrant before requesting private user data from companies. The home security company Ring's budding relationship with law enforcement has made people more aware of just how much privacy is sacrificed when they sign up for a lot of, for a lot of tech services. Ring produces video doorbells that allow customers to see who is at their front door from their smartphones. Amazon recently purchased Ring in 2018 for a billion dollars. But the customer isn't the only one who can see who's there. Government technology reports that under Ring, par quote, under Ring partnerships, Police are provided with a special portal that allows them to communicate with and request video from, com from community residents. Police have to ask the owners of the footage for it first, but if the owners refuse to turn it over, the cops can then go to Ring directly. Quote, the consumer knows what they're getting into, Tony Body of the Fresno County Sheriff's Office insisted to government technology. Quote, if you're a good, upstanding person who's doing things lawfully, nobody has concerns. Go fuck yourself, you absolute piece of shit. If you're not doing anything wrong, you've got nothing to worry about. Eat my entire asshole. You complete... Fresno County Sheriff's Office, uh, uh, Tony Body of the Fresno... T-O-N-Y-B-O-T-T-I. Go fuck yourself. You shove this bullshit right up your ass. Jesus fucking Christ. If you're a good, upstanding person who is doing things lawfully, nobody has concerns. Jesus fucking Christ on a cracker. This is, oh my God. Fuck the cops, man. Fuck cops. Motherboard recently reported that Amazon is encouraging law enforcement to join as many community boards as possible so that people in the community will be willing to provide the footage directly to the police. Quote, I think right now people assume they own all their data, says Nila Bala. They do, and they don't. Um, says Nila Bala, Associate Director of Criminal Justice and Civil Liberties at the R Street Institute. They, quote, don't realize the reach that private companies and law enforcement have on their information. Well, the companies own it. I mean, it's pretty simple, right? If you, I mean, all you have to do is look at the terms of service. The company owns the data. That's why Instagram is allowed to just use your shit in their marketing material. They own it. You don't. This is true across the board. I don't understand. Anyway. 
Salt Lake City Police Department recently used Lyft data to try and find missing University of Utah student Mackenzie Look. Quote, people also analyzed Luke's social media and dating app accounts. The, the, the Deseret? Deseret. That's interesting. The Deseret News reported. In that case, police used warrants to obtain the information, as required by Utah law. But Utah, Washington, and California are the only three states that currently require law enforcement to obtain warrants before companies can hand over private data. At some companies, it is policy to require warrants before giving law enforcement extensive information, but these companies will still offer up users' names, contact information, and IP addresses upon receiving a, a subpoena. And subpoenas, unlike warrants, don't require that authorities demonstrate probable cause. Most of the biggest digital services simply require a subpoena for user data. This includes such popular companies as Lyft, Uber, Venmo, Netflix, Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Uber has reported that it got 1,248 data requests from state governments and 156 from the feds in the, in the first six months of 2017, leading the company to turn over data on more than 3,000 driver and rider accounts. Authorities had warrants for only 231 of these requests. In 839 requests, they relied on a subpoena. Snapchat is, given more, uh, is even more lenient about letting law enforcement snoop on user data. The company says it will give out any data it reasonably believes is needed to, quote, comply with any valid legal process, governmental request, or applicable law, rule, or regulation. Bala says consumers should take steps to make sure that they are aware of what information they are sharing with the apps they sign up for, and that companies should be more transparent about what kinds of information people are giving them. The authorities need to be transparent about how they're treating data they obtain from these companies. Quote, we should demand that our government follow best practices for collecting, storing, and destroying data during and after investigations. That's never going to happen. I want to go back to this fucking asshole from Fresno County. Tony Body of the Fresno County Sheriff's Office insisted to government technology, quote, if you're a good upstanding person who is doing things lawfully, you don't have a right to privacy. Oh, I'm sorry. Uh, nobody has concerns. That was the proper quote. What an absolute fucking knob. Tony Body, eat my entire asshole. <laughs> Go fuck yourself. Oh, that makes me so angry. I hate, I hate that, hate that. If you're not doing anything wrong, what do you have to worry about? It's not that I'm doing anything wrong. It's that I have fucking rights. You pricks. God damn it. Lock down your shit as much as you can. That's all I can say. Ugh. <sighs> Easiest thing to do is lock down your email. There, there's a couple of really good encrypted email services that you can switch over to. Start using those guys. Don't, don't, don't fucking... Ugh. Another story from Reason. Published on the 12th. By, uh, written by Jacob Sullum. Every Democrat in the Senate supports a constitutional amendment that would radically curtail freedom of speech. The Democracy for All Amendment aims to mute some voices so that others can be heard. Okay, this, this is all with regard to Citizens United. Okay, Citizens United versus the Federal Election Commission. That was the case. And Citizens United is often referred to as a case that allows too much money in politics. It's, it's referred to as the case that made it possible for companies to give so much money to candidates that they uh, can't help but win, basically. Um, they would have to try to lose, essentially, is, is the way that it's kind of portrayed. Um, but Citizens United is not about money. Citizens United was never about money. Um, and not very many people know this, but it mentions it in the article, so I'll just start reading from that. Every Democrat in the Senate is backing a constitutional amendment that aims to overturn Citizens United v. Federal Election Commission, the 2010 decision in which the Supreme Court lifted legal restrictions on what corporations and unions are allowed to say about politics at election time. 
That would be troubling enough since Citizens United, which involved a film that was banned from TV because it was too critical of Hillary Clinton, simply recognized that Americans do not lose their First Amendment rights when they organize themselves in a disfavored way. But the so-called democracy for all amendment goes much further than nullifying one Supreme Court decision. It would radically rewrite the constitutional treatment of political speech, allowing Congress and state legislatures to impose any restrictions on election-related spending they consider reasonable. Quote, to advance democratic self-governance and political equality and to protect the integrity of government and the electoral process, Section 1 says, Congress and the states may regulate and set reasonable limits on the raising and spending of money by candidates and others to influence elections. By allowing restrictions on money spent by anyone to influence elections, that provision would nullify a principle set forth in the landmark 1976 case Buckley v. Vallejo. Uh, Vallejo, no, not Vallejo. In Buckley, the Supreme Court upheld the Federal Election Campaign Act's limits on campaign contributions, which it said were justified by the desire to prevent, quote, corruption and the appearance of corruption, but the court overturned FECA's limits on spending by candidates and on independent spending by individuals and groups. Those limits, the court said, quote, place substantial and direct restrictions on the ability of candidate citizens and associations to engage in protected political expression, uh, restrictions that the First Amendment cannot tolerate. The rationale for that conclusion is not, as critics often claim, that, quote, money is speech. The point, rather, is that people must spend money to communicate with large numbers of their fellow citizens. Limits on spending, therefore, restrict their ability to exercise their First Amendment rights. If the government banned computers and smartphones, that would clearly violate the First Amendment, not because computers and smartphones are speech, but because they are necessary to participate in online debate. The Democracy for All Amendment would ditch this understanding of the First Amendment and instead rely on legislators' self-restraint in deciding what limits on spending are reasonable. Courts reviewing the resulting rules would have precious little guidance in deciding what, uh, when they went too far. Section 2 of the amendment adds that legislators, quote, may distinguish between natural persons and corporations or other artificial entities created by law, including by prohibiting such entities from spending money to, quote, influence elections. I'm sorry, to influence elections. In other words, a complete ban on election-related speech by citizens organized as corporations, including a wide range of nonprofit interest groups across the political spectrum, which would, uh, would be presumably reasonable regardless of timing. By contrast, the ban overturned by Citizens United applied only to messages that mentioned a candidate for federal office within 30 days of a primary or 60 days of a general election. The implication, perhaps, is that a complete ban on election-related spending by individuals or by groups not organized as corporations would not be constitutional. But how close legislators could get to that policy without violating the First Amendment is anybody's guess. Quote, every American deserves to have an equal voice at the ballot box, regardless of the size of their bank accounts, says Senator Tom uh, Carper, a uh, Democrat from Delaware, a lead co-sponsor of the amendment. Chris Coons, the other Democratic senator from Delaware, likewise promises that the amendment will, quote, give all Americans an equal voice in our elections. There's a little bit more to this article. I'm not going to continue reading it. I, actually, I will. I'll read the third section. The third section of the amendment contradicts the other two sections by stating that, quote, nothing in this article shall be const construed to grant Congress or the states the power to abridge the freedom of the press. The amendment's backers seem to think they are constitutionalizing the, quote, media exemption from limits like the ones overturned in Citizens United. Under that exception, news outlets such as the New York Times and CNN were free to talk about political candidates close to an election, even though they were organized as corporations. As scholars such as UCLA law professor Eugene Volk have shown, however, the, quote, freedom of the press protected by the First Amendment does not refer to a particular profession. The clause was meant to protect anyone who uses a technology of mass communication, the printing press, 
at the time, and by extension, television, radio, and the internet today. On its face, then, Section 3 of the Democracy for All Amendment invalidates the rest of it. Um, there's an interesting thing about this, when they talk about the freedom of the press and, and conflating the freedom of the press with journalism. Uh, there's, a, there's an interesting thing here that's been theorized by some people, and, and I, I, looking at the way things have gone, I think it's possible, however unlikely, that this could happen. The idea of journalistic licensure, okay, so the idea that you would have to have a license to be considered a journalist, or you got your journalism license, um, and this idea of creating classes of speech. So somebody like Alex Jones, for example, um, would not be able to claim that he's doing journalistic speech, even though he is. I mean, there are things, look, the dude's a nut, but... There are some things he's reported that have been true. Some things. <laughs> Limited though they may be, right? He is doing journalism. He's just doing a, a different kind of journalism. He's doing, uh, frankly, he's doing as much journalism as a guy like Joe Scarborough's doing. Joe Scarborough put out a tweet immediately trying to, I'll talk about this later, but Joe Scarborough right after the death of, uh, right after, sorry, I had to look at this real quick, right after the death of Epstein, Joe Scarborough put out a tweet that implied that it was the Russians that killed Epstein. Joe Scarborough did that of Morning Joe, right? So Alex Jones is doing it at just as legitimate journalism as Joe Scarborough is doing. So you can't, and I, I think if you're going to start defining these terms in this way, if you're going to start building tiers of free expression, where you have one, one tier is journalists and the other one's the rest of us plebeians. And it seems like they're moving in that direction. I have a plane. Everything's weird. Um, I don't know why things are going strange right now. I just rejoined the, the chat. Um, if you're going to start building these, these tiers of free expression, you got journalists on one tier and the rest of us on another, and talking about things in that way... Like if I work for a corporation, let's say I work for a 501c3, I don't have a journalism license, but... I can, um, I, I, I start talking about politics and I start saying, well, this, this guy over here, uh, wants to legalize prostitution and that's what my 501c3 cares about. So I'm going to endorse this guy. I wouldn't be allowed to do that because I don't have my journalism license. It's kind of the world they're building. I don't know. I don't know how literal that's going to be, but if you start trying to define things in this way, where you have these tiers of free expression, that's how it's going to go. This is the biggest problem with Citizens United. And, and the other big problem with Citizens United is that ultimately Citizens United is a, uh, it's a distraction. Because the real problem is not campaign donations by, by uh, corporations. That's not the problem. The problem is lobbying. Lobbying is the problem. If you want to talk about money in politics, everyone wants to talk about campaign donations because the only time anybody talks about it is during campaigns. But... It, that campaign donations aren't the problem with money in politics. It's, it's the lobbying. Ultimately, this is a uh, ultimately this is a distraction. This is something different from Newsweek. Maggie McNeil shared this, and I thought it was worth reading. Published on the seventh, written by Liesel Gerntholz. I don't know how to pronounce that name at all, but it is from Newsweek. Sex work should be legal if only to protect women from police. This is an opinion piece. There is a place I wanted to start. We have researched illegal sex work in China, Tanzania, Cambodia, South Africa, and the United States, where workers are often forced to conduct business in dangerous back streets, parks, and abandoned buildings. 
Whether interviewing sex workers in wealthy U.S. cities or small South African towns, we consistently find police abuse to be one of criminalization's main cruelties. Sex workers often face harassment, extortion, and rape, and vulnerability to violence at the hands of both police officers and men who purport to be customers. Women tell us that because they cannot trust members of law enforcement, they are deterred from reporting attacks by men who pretend to be clients but who abuse, rape, and sometimes even try to kill them. Sex workers have also told us that being arrested and detained by police has interrupted their access to health care, including essential HIV treatment. This, this is particularly dangerous in South Africa, which has the largest HIV epidemic in the world. But South Africa is not the only nation whose policies put sex workers in danger. I see many similarities between the United States, my current home, and my native South Africa, where I grew up after apartheid and in the throes of the AIDS epidemic. Both are influential countries whose constitutions are relatively strong on human rights, but whose communities are plagued by endemic violence against women. Sex work is illegal in both countries. Nevada is the only U.S. state where the exchange of sex for money is allowed. Fortunately, South Africa and the United States are both sites of growing movements to decriminalize sex work once and for all. U.S. activists are gaining traction with a groundbreaking bill introduced in New York's legislature. Uh, in another sign of progress, Senator Kamala Harris recently went on record during a presidential campaign to support decriminalization. Of course she did, because she's a fucking cop, and she has to convince people she's not a fucking cop. But this is a woman who, oh man, I fucking hate Kamala Harris. She's a cop. She was, she, she, ta she takes joy in putting people in prison. Um, you've seen it in her interviews and things like that. She, oh, she's terrible. In South Africa, President Cyril, I'm not even going to try that last name, indicated this year that he's open to rethinking laws that make sex work illegal. In both countries, there's also the risk that half measures could derail the road to, to progress. Politicians are increasingly drawn to the Nordic model, which they see as a compromise between sex worker activists who want, to de who want decrim and middle-class voters who think sex work should be banned. This model, first used in Sweden, makes buying sex illegal but does not prosecute the seller, the sex worker. It aims to end sex work by killing the demand for transactional sex. But in practice, the Nordic model has a negative impact on sex workers. It makes it harder for sex workers to unionize, run their own brothels, open bank accounts for their businesses, and find safe places to work. It also leaves in place the stigma around sex work that leaves so many women vulnerable to violence and police abuse. As a South African who has lived through the end of apartheid and witnessed continuing inequities, I am not naive, decriminalization won't solve every problem for women like uh, the, the, the name of the person who was talked about at the top of the piece, who, has, who turned to sex work to feed their children, but the fact remains that South Africa and the United States will be safer places for women once they stop undermining the autonomy and dignity of people who want to earn a living on their own terms. I just thought that was an interesting piece that uh, I had seen that uh, that Maggie McNeil had shared it, and I thought it was it was worth reading. I'm there are two kinds of people who are against the decriminalization of sex work. There are people who are religious fundamentalists, and they would see the decriminalization of sex work as a moral degradation of society. Uh, those people I have no time for, and there are sex negative feminists who see sex work as a sexist practice, as a, uh, as a, uh, a uh, I don't know, as inherently misogynist, they see it as an expression of the patriarchy. This is the idea of sex work. Um, those people are also stupid, and I have no time for them. Um, this, 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 this whole discussion is based around moralizing and paternalism. The real patriarchal, if you want to call it that, and I think it's probably one of the few cases where that word actually applies, the real patriarchal agenda is the, um, 
the paternalization that that people are are justifying by saying that sex work is wrong or immoral or it's uh or it is uh, slavery some people have even called it slavery it's a lot of times it's men but it's a lot of women too like i said there's all these sex sex negative feminists out there who want to talk about how sex work is this big terrible thing um ultimately you're just undercutting the autonomy of individual women you're undercutting the autonomy of it's really not just individual women. If you're saying that you own somebody, you're saying you own someone's body. You're saying you get to decide what they do, how they labor. You're claiming ownership of a person's body. And especially when it's mostly women who are affected by this, I can't think of anything more patriarchal than that. Claiming ownership of women's bodies just because you disagree with what they may do with them. Um. There's your fucking patriarchy. There you go. <laughs> All right. That is our last real news story for this episode. So, you know what time it is. Brothers will do fun. It's time for Who Do You Trust? Hubba, hubba, hubba. Money, money, money. Who do you trust? Time for the credits. My volume was turned way down during that sounder. Time for the credits. I, uh, I'm, I'm glad to be back doing this again. Hold on a second, let me get this pulled up just real quick. I closed my spreadsheet. I am out of it today. I have no idea why. Okay, here we go. Man, I feel so good doing this again. Like I said, I'm out of it today and I don't know why. But, uh, as I said in the last episode, last full episode, I'm going to get three or four episodes in the bag before I go in and request a payout on Subscribestar. I want to get back into an actual schedule, back doing this regularly again, and that will be the first payout I've requested on Subscribestar, actually, will be when I do that. Um, because this hiatus was so long and things like that. I'm gonna, I'm just gonna, you know, I'm gonna wait. I'm gonna wait uh, and make sure I get a few of these in the can and have a schedule that I, that I can stick to relatively tightly, try to stay on the Sunday, Monday kind of thing. Um, before I request a payout from the thing and make the wonderful, wonderful supporters of the show, give me any money. Those supporters include superior executive producers, saw you 77 and Ixir C and producers, Max Ogburn and absurdist fool. Max Ogburn, the person who's been there for a really long time. I, I had I, I talked to Absurdist Fool on Twitter. Dude's very interesting. I might I might want to have him on. Uh because he has an has a, an area of expertise. Actually, Max Ogburn does too. There are experts who listen to this show. Um experts on things. I, I love that fact. And it's on things that I find fascinating. Um and because of the goal that we reached. There should be next month, I'm going to pull a name out of a hat, and one of these supporters is going to be invited onto the show. They can choose not to come on if they don't want to, but I'm going to be pulling a name out of a hat. Somebody's going to be invited on to do an episode probably next month um, because we hit that goal. And then once I do that, I'll raise the goal a little bit because one of the producers on the show is me because I needed one more so that I could request payouts. So I'm going to raise the goal a little bit uh, after I fulfill it this one time, and then uh, maybe we can work toward it again. That'd be wonderful. Um, so let's go through these uh, wonderful, wonderful motherfuckers again. We have Superior Executive Producer, Saw You 77 and Xerxes, 
And producers Max Ogburn and Absurdist Fool. Thank you all so much. I love you all. You are wolves amongst ravens, diamonds on the internet, and um, other other lovely things that I will think of later on. Probably the next show, I'll come up with something else to call you that's nice. Okay, so on Saturday, I released an emergency show. Uh, it was about 15 minutes long. The emergency show was immediately after the death of Jeffrey Epstein. The, the, the story hadn't taken shape, so I didn't really try to detail a lot of things. Uh, so, you know, I just kind of talked about some of the fallout of it and what I thought might be interesting about it and sort of looked retrospectively at the first time that he, at the, the incident that got him put on Suicide Watch. I'm going to read from The Hill. This is the story that has taken shape. This was published on the 11th, that would be yesterday, by Rebecca Clark, again on the Hill. Epstein was not monitored before death report. Jeffrey Epstein was not being monitored in jail as, as directed before his death early Saturday, a law enforcement official with knowledge of the financier's detention told the New York Times. Authorities said Epstein died of apparent suicide. He was in jail on sex trafficking charges. The law enforcement official told the Times Epstein was supposed to be checked by guards every 30 minutes, but that procedure was not being followed the night he was found dead in the Manhattan jail. The jail had also transferred Epstein's cellmate and left him alone ahead of his apparent suicide, the Times reports. <laughs> Epstein's death has left officials and lawmakers asking for answers on how this happened. Epstein had apparently been taken off suicide watch before he died. That was a report that came out shortly after the emergency show. Uh, his death comes just weeks after officials investigated a possible suicide attempt. This was that first time he got hurt, the, the, the incident that got him put on suicide watch. Um, the FBI is launching an investigation into the circumstances of Epstein's death, Attorney General William Barr said in a statement. So, this is the official story as it's taken shape. Epstein was taken off suicide watch shortly before his death. A uh, couple of days, a, a day, something like that. Shortly before his death, he's taken off suicide watch. Decreased monitoring, things like that. Then, they don't have guards making the rounds past his cell, checking up on him as they're, as they're meant to do every 30 minutes. Then, <laughs> they move his cellmate. Epstein kills himself. Epstein, you know, kills himself. That's all in air quotes. And now Epstein's dead. So, again, this is the story as it's taken shape. Take off suicide watch, not being watched by guards, they move his cellmate, and then he dies. I love this story. I really love this story. I think I freaked out Mr. Sue a little bit when I was talking to him about it on Discord. Um, he was like, man, you're way too excited. I was like, I'm 100% here for this shit. This is amazing. And he, he asked me why I was so excited about it. And, and I told him, I said, look, this is... Political science and culture are closely linked. This is the kind of situation that's going to deepen the rift between the right and the left, especially out on the fringes of both sides. This rift is going to be deepened by this event. And this is for two reasons. The first reason is because um, the right's always going to believe this was the Clintons. 
Um, I personally am not convinced this was the Clintons. This was certainly someone. Um, the Clintons are, you know, kind of at the top of the list, but there are a lot of people who wanted Epstein dead. There are a lot of people who would not want this to go to trial. A lot of people. The Clintons are among those. And frankly, Trump might be among those as well. He's nowhere near the top of the list, but he's not at the bottom of the list either. I don't think it was him. I think he has probably the best track record of any of these people of distancing himself from Epstein. But still, you know, he's on the list. The idea that Trump did it is something that is something the left is glomming onto. The left, uh, this is an interesting thing I might talk about, you know, some, some other time, but the left loves to steal memes. Um, the left can't meme. They don't have a good, there's no good ironic base in the left, so they don't really understand, I don't think, memes. Um, the left can't meme. And so what they tend to do, and really the right has a hard time memeing too. I don't want to be, you know, they, they both kind of suck. Uh, they, they lack the nihilism, I think. They believe too much. But in any case, the left was starting to get, you know, this, this Trump uh, body count thing going. So, you know, as if, as if Trump were the reason that Epstein died. And again, like I said, he's not at the bottom of my list. <laughs> he's, not, he's not at the top, but he's not at the bottom either. Um, they wanted to get this Trump body count thing rolling. And Clinton body count had already exploded. Because this is a popular meme. Trump body count's never been a meme before. Clinton body count has been a meme for years, decades almost. The idea of the Clinton body count became especially popular on the internet after Seth Rich. I have another story here from Politico. And this is all just for just kind of adding context. This is Politico. This is a mainstream source. And this is how they're covering this kind of conspiracy theory aspect of this. From, uh, from Politico, published on the 10th, written by John F. Harris, Epstein death brings birth of mainstream conspiracy theories. Jeffrey Epstein, his perversions and the perversions of justice swirling around his case, has lived for years on the margins of politics because of his association with two presidents, Bill Clinton's Bill Clinton and Donald Trump, among others in a long roster of people with, res with respectable titles who spent time in his disre uh, disreputable orbit. Epstein's death by what authorities called suicide in a Manhattan jail cell Saturday uh, morning moved his case to the center of American politics. One of the creepiest figures ever to vault to notoriety in modern culture is gone. But the convicted sex offender's resonance as an emblem of the dark side of national character, a stimulant of suspicion, contempt, and paranoia in addition to plain nausea, likely will last longer and with more intensity than if he had lived. At a minimum, the Epstein death is now political, even if one takes the, even if one takes the details at face value. How was the person who at the moment was arguably the most prominent defendant awaiting trial in the world, who had already apparently attempted suicide a couple weeks earlier, able to take his life at a federal detention center, and who will be held accountable for the lapse. More profoundly, the Epstein matter is now thoroughly political because many influential people are unable to take the details at face value. Indeed, they think it is simply naive to do so. The signature of American politics in the Trump era is a conviction shared initially by many people who back Trump, but now embraced with similar fervor by many who loathe him, that things are not what they seem, that the official version of events is sustained by lies, that the institutions of American life are not on the level. Instead, by these lights, they are affected by personal or partisan interest at every turn. This president's political movement began with Trump's disproven allegations that Barack Obama was not born in the United States, 
and rose to power in an election that was manipulated by a Russian propaganda campaign, leading to an administration with near-daily denunciations of well-documented journalism as fake news. It is not an environment conducive to living to giving any official utterance by an authority figure the benefit of the doubt, especially when the facts are authentically murky, as they are so far in the Epstein death. The furious reaction from mainstream public officials, as well as a swelling chorus of prominent voices on social media, it wasn't just from politi- uh, professional conspiracy theorists or guys at the bar, as soon as news of his death broke, showed how pervasive this reaction is. If we're living in a paranoid fantasy universe, New York Times columnist Paul Krugman wrote on Twitter, I would be very suspicious about the Epstein suicide, even about whether it was really suicide. And you know what? The Epstein case itself shows that we are kind of living in a paranoid fantasy universe. That might be the only thing Krugman's ever said that made me, that I agree with. I guess you know what they say about stopped clocks and whatnot. Quote, a guy who had information that would have destroyed rich and powerful men's lives ends up dead in his jail cell. How predictably Russian, tweeted MSNBC host Joe Scarborough. That's the one right there, man. That's the one. That, to me, I think is going to be the most important tweet of this whole thing. Something stinks to high heaven, agreed former Senator Claire McCaskill, Democrat from Missouri. How does someone on suicide watch hang himself with no intervention? Impossible, unless... Actually, Epstein had been on suicide watch after an earlier incident in July, on July 23rd, but was no longer. That only came out in the middle of the day on Saturday. Again, it was after the emergency episode was posted. Uh, I doubt the veracity of that, to be honest with you. Why not is one of, uh, why not is one of these serious questions that must be answered, according to a statement from William Barr, who said that he was appalled to learn of the death at a, at a facility overseen by his Justice Department and was seeking an investigation. But it was immediately clear that many people would not regard an inquiry overseen by Barr as credible. His handling of special counsel Robert Mueller's probe into the president and Russian election interference left many people, including most congressional Democrats, convinced he, uh, he sees his role not as defending rule of law or the executive branch broadly, but President Donald Trump's personal interests. Quote, A.G. lied to us about the Mueller report in order to protect his boss, Trump. He was in charge of Epstein's care. And we're supposed to trust him on this as news breaks that Mar-a-Lago was a site for trafficking, wrote Neera Trandon, head of the Liberal Center for American Progress on Twitter. Quote, we have to ask who stood to gain from his permanent silence, said Harvard law professor Lawrence Tribe. (laughs) Like a hundred people. Um... Quote, who could he have incriminated in an effort to win favorable treatment from the Trump Justice Department? He demanded that Barr recuse himself from, quote, overseeing an inquiry that cuts this close to the bone. Trump has said he knew Epstein casually in New York and Palm Beach social circles. He was quoted years ago describing him as a, quote, terrific guy and joking about how he reputedly uh, likes women, quote, on the younger side, but that he's had no contact for a decade or more. He also banned him from some of his properties. Like, Trump has a, out of all the people who would benefit, I think Trump has a cleaner record than a lot of them with Epstein. Um, I don't want to defend Trump. Like I said, he's on my list, but he's not at the top of my list. In any case, that's kind of a taste of how this is being covered in the mainstream. Now, I'm, I'm, I'm convinced now there's, there's, there's two ways this thing's going to go. I had another story here from Reuters about the U.S. Attorney General citing irregularities at the jail where Epstein died, but I think a lot of that would have been covered in the Hill piece. Yeah, most of it. Yeah, most of it was covered in the Hill piece. So, I'm convinced now 
that this is going to go one of two ways. There's a possibility that the left loses this chance. That they are too scared to act on what is, I believe, a golden opportunity for them. I said on the emergency show, the left is primed for conspiratorial belief. They have been for a few years now. The whole Russia thing is a conspiracy theory. The official story is that there was no collusion. The official story is that the, they're, you know, the Russian government, while they did mess with some stuff, they didn't do it on behalf of Trump or at the behest of Trump. And the fact that they messed with some stuff, I mean, that's, every country does that. We do that. That's not weird at all. Buying, and frankly, you know, buying, what was it, $10,000 worth of ads is <laughs> nothing. That's nothing on Facebook. Nothing at all. So, <sighs> it wasn't $10,000. It was less than that. I lost my train of thought. Oh, um, this is going to go one of two ways. We're going to have the left lose this opportunity and not push hard on the Trump killed Epstein narrative. Or there, and I saw a little bit of this on Twitter, this idea of bots and collusion and all this stuff. This could all be become a maelstrom in kind of the middle to far left uh, fringe Democrats, that kind of thing. This could become a maelstrom of conspiratorial belief. I would prefer that the second one happened because it would be more entertaining for me, but, <laughs> um, I'm not sure the way this is going to go. You know, I thought when I released the emergency episode, I thought for sure that the left was going to jump on this and that they were going to be pushing the Trump body count thing and that they were going to be really going after it. I'm not convinced of that anymore. The media coverage of it, especially in the mainstream, has been a little mellow. Joe Scarborough, of course, tweeted his thing. But the week's only just begun. We don't have an autopsy report yet. I'm just not sure anymore. I think if they're smart, they jump on it. I think if, they, if they're smart, they push for it to be investigated. This is something that, the, that congressional Democrats could use to pile on. People like AOC, things like that. People like that could, could use to pile on to their calls for an investigation of Trump, the individual. I don't know. I don't know. I, 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 I can only tell you what I would do if I were them. And if I were them, that's what I would be doing. I would be making sure that every TV and every bar has those closed captions scrolling that are implying that Trump killed Epstein. That's what I'd be doing. But I don't know. I just don't know. We're, in, we're beginning this kind of interesting campaign season. Now, campaigns, I've said it before on the show, and I'll say it again a million times. Campaigns are not political campaigns. They're not. They're marketing. It's a marketing campaign. And I don't know. I just don't know what they're going to do. It's possible they're trying to dig things up. That could be what's taking them so long. Um, I would have had, you know, hour-long specials on Monday about <laughs> Trump's ties to Epstein. But maybe it takes a little bit longer to come up with that stuff. Maybe it takes a little bit longer. If I were them, that's what I would be doing. And again, there's part of me that hopes they do. Because, man, it would be entertaining to watch the left evolve into the same kind of conspiratorial insanity that you see in some sectors on the right. Because, frankly, I get tired of laughing at Alex Jones. Give me some people on the left to laugh at. Let me laugh at Joe Scarborough. Because, like I said, I don't think it was Trump. He's on the list, but he's nowhere near the top. There are people who had closer relationships with Epstein for longer that would benefit more from the death of Jeffrey Epstein. But... I was happy to see in the uh, in the free political newsletter uh, 
Justin Robert Young's free political newsletter. I was happy to see that he said this dude didn't kill himself. Uh, and that tells me that this is this. There's a level of acceptance to this idea that Epstein did not commit suicide. I think it's important to have that because it kind of goes back to our interesting article for today from Pew. You can't trust authority. You cannot trust them. And I think the more re- people realize that, the better. So that's just a little bit of a, of a uh, recap, a little bit of the emergency episode. Oh, there was one thing that I did want to point out on this show in case you didn't get a chance to listen to the emergency episode. Um, I hope this, this event has kind of brought into focus what that earlier event was about, the one on the 23rd um, of July. Because I know myself and a few other people were on there kind of, what, what, what did it fail? Did it, did, did, what happened? Did he actually try to kill himself? I don't know what's going on here. Um, the idea was to get him, I think the idea was to get him on Suicide Watch so that then when people see, well, he had been on Suicide Watch and then he was taken off Suicide Watch, well, he was on Suicide Watch, so yeah, suicide makes sense. It bolsters the idea of the story. It bolsters the narrative to have him had been on Suicide Watch at one point. In any case, I just think that's retroactively, I mean, not retroactively, but uh, kind of in retrospect, I think that was the plan. Um, but yeah, that's just kind of a, a recap of the emergency thing. A, a few corrections. I had said that he was on Suicide Watch at the time when I recorded that episode. Apparently he was not. Um, I'm skeptical of that, but that's what's being reported. Um, so I did want to update on that a little bit. Clinton body count, Trump body count, the divisions keep getting deeper and politics keeps getting more interesting coming right up onto a campaign. Man, what a time to be alive. (laughs) We certainly live in the best timeline. Thank you guys. I want to thank everybody who hung out in the chat and kept me on my toes during this recording. You can do that every week. A-I-R-A-D dot I-O slash live. I want to thank everybody who listens to the show, everybody who downloads the show, everybody who rates us and gives us a review on whatever platform you listen on. I want to thank the producers, all you glorious and magnanimous people who support this show. You can do that on AIRAD.io or on the Rogue File, roguefile.com slash donate. Uh, You can find the things that I write on the Rogue File, roguefile.com. Remember, you can find me on Twitter. At Dean O Files, you can find the network on Twitter at AltNet Radio. Go ahead and give us a follow there. I love every single one of you glorious freaks, and I will be back with you next week. Y'all have a great week. This has been an alternative internet radio production. For more great shows like this, visit AIR at AIRAD.io. That's AIRAD.io.